This message is part of the series, Asking for a Friend, what we all think, but think we shouldn't. The entire series can be found at fromthefray.com slash asking. Hey, welcome back to Asking for a Friend, week four. One of the writers of the Bible, at least one, has some serious issues with God. His name is Solomon. We're told that Solomon is the wisest man who ever lived. So if the wisest man who ever lived has some issues with God, just assume you and I are going to have some as well. Not that it makes us right, but it does make us human. And that's what this series is about. That's what Ecclesiastes is about. It's just Solomon sharing out loud for the whole world to to peek in and read his journal about the issues that he has with God. He just jumps in the ring and just kind of starts sparring with God. And uh, we just finished round one of his boxing match with God. That was Ecclesiastes 1 through 3. And now, if you want to open to Ecclesiastes 4, we're going to start round two. Round two is much more personal than round one. In round one, Solomon talks about how life feels meaningless and monotonous at times. It's much more philosophical. Round two, Solomon leaves his palace, and he goes down to the street, and he walks through the streets and the sidewalks, and goes to where we work and to where we live, and he kind of peeks into the windows of our lives, and he gives commentary on on the most personal aspects of who we are. We'll just jump right into that. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 1. Here's what Solomon says when he's peeking into our windows, looking into our life. Again, I observed all the oppression that takes place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed with no one to comfort them. The oppressors have great power, and their victims are helpless. So what's he see? People are lonely. We can get very, very lonely down here on earth. The song wasn't around yet, but if it was, I think Solomon would have agreed with the Beatles. Look at all the lonely people. Where do they all come from? All the lonely people. Where do they all belong? Solomon goes on in uh, verse 2. So I concluded that the dead are better off than the living. But most fortunate of all are those who are not yet born. For they have not seen all the evil that is done under the sun. All right. As we read Ecclesiastes together, one of the things I want you to look for and notice and pay attention to is what Solomon is not saying. I want you to see just as much what he doesn't say as you do what he does say. Because there are many things, uh, many issues that Solomon has with God that are not resolved. I'll just tell you now, I've read the end of the book. He doesn't resolve a lot of these issues. He doesn't give answers. He doesn't give solutions. There are many things he just leaves it alone. He doesn't solve it. This is one of those things. What Solomon had to say here about all of the lonely people who were oppressed and their victims of the powerful people, what does Solomon say about those people? Yeah, I saw them. They're better off having never been born. And then he just goes on. He just keeps going on to another topic. Solomon doesn't try to solve it, doesn't try to resolve it. So if you read that and you think, well, that doesn't solve anything, I would agree with you. I would say, yeah, it doesn't. In fact, I don't understand either. I don't understand why the bad people always seem to have more power than the good people. And here's one of my issues with God. If this sermon series is about saying out loud the things that we think, but we think we shouldn't think, here's one of the things I think. God is not obligated to to make sense to me. And that bothers me. God is under no obligation to make sense to me. He doesn't have to explain himself sometimes. And so sometimes, he just doesn't. 
he's comfortable with me not understanding why he does or doesn't do some things down here. And it probably annoys me just as much as it annoys my kids when they ask me a why question and I simply say, because I said so. And just leave it at that. What I hope you can see is that Ecclesiastes, a book about issues with God, written by the smartest man who ever lived, Ecclesiastes is more concerned with survival than solutions. It's written for people who are just trying to make it every day. Sure, I would love to have answers to why bad things happen and why the people with all the power always seem to be the evil, wicked people and and why we have things like cats and boy bands and all these bad things in the world. I would love to understand all that stuff. But even more than that, I'm just trying to make it to Tuesday. I've got enough issues in my own life, enough problems that, that, that I'm causing to other people that I hope I can put one foot in front of the other one day at a time and cause as little pain as possible to the people who are in my life. Ecclesiastes is a book written to help us just make it every day. So whether you and I agree with verses 2 and 3, or whether we understand verses 2 and 3, that the oppressed are better off having never been born, whether we agree doesn't matter because it doesn't apply to us. You and I have been born. We are down here on earth. And what we have to do is survive. We have to try and stay alive until we see Jesus face to face, do the best we can down here and stay alive one day at a time. We have to live in this world. And it's tough and it's messy. I agree with you. I do. In fact, that's the question that we're trying to answer this week. How do we stay alive when we feel so alone? How do we do it? How do we stay alive when we feel so alone? Now, before I go any further, let me say, this is not about getting married. There are plenty of married people who feel trapped and alone in their marriage. So getting married just by itself is not going to solve your loneliness problem. It's not about getting married. It's not about having a roommate. It's not about having kids. It's not about getting picked last at dodgeball. It goes much deeper than that. The, the fundamental state of the human condition is loneliness. Let's say that again. Loneliness is the fundamental state of the human condition. That's how we start out. It's, it's the most natural state. And without some kind of involvement, some kind of intentional action on our part or God's, we're just left to be alone. That's our default state. Remember the first ever negative statement in the Bible. First time the Bible says something is not good. It's when God is commenting on the fact that Adam is alone. It is not good for man to be alone. Adam almost had it made in the garden. He had God above him. He had creation below him. But he had no one beside him as a partner to walk through life as an equal, hand in hand. So God intervened to solve Adam's problem of loneliness, and he sent him a partner. If we're going to intervene in our lives, if we're going to partner with God and intervene and stop this default state of loneliness from taking over and just crushing us, then we need to understand Where does loneliness come from? Solomon gives us at least three kinds of people who are prone to loneliness. There's probably more, sure. But Solomon, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, Solomon gives us at least three kinds of people who are the most prone to loneliness. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 4. Then I observed that most people are motivated to success because they envy their neighbors. But this too is meaningless. Like chasing the wind. What's the first barrier to community? Who's prone to being lonely? An envious person. Envy runs in a pack with jealousy and greed and pride. If you find one, you're going to usually find the others. 
Envy and greed will never allow me to celebrate your victories with you unless your victories benefit me. Because greed is always saying, I owe me. I owe me more. I owe me. Envy says, God owes me. So whether I owe me or God owes me, it doesn't matter. You shouldn't have gotten it. And I can't be happy for you. Pride will never allow me to enjoy anything unless I have more of that thing than you. doesn't matter what it is. I don't need to be rich. I just need to have more money than you. I don't need to be pretty. I just don't want to be as ugly as you. Now you can see how this virus, hard to have community, it makes it so easy to be lonely when you're an envious person. You don't have to think very hard to figure out how this can make you feel extremely alone. Because until you can celebrate the victories of another person, you will never feel like you belong with anybody. As your pastor, I'm not even going to ask you if you've ever been guilty of this. I'm going to answer on your behalf and say, yes. Yes, you have. We have all been guilty of this. It's very, very hard to avoid this. From the moment Adam and Eve got jealous because God had more knowledge than them, the humans, us, have just been walking off this cliff ever since. Started immediately with their very next generation. Remember Adam and Eve's kids, Cain and Abel? One of them killed the other one because he was jealous. Cain killed Abel because God accepted Abel's offering and didn't accept Cain. So Cain killed him. Jealousy's been doing this to us ever since. Whether it's jealousy, greed, pride, envy, whatever you call it, it is the mother of all sins and it leaves a residue of loneliness everywhere it goes. Here are two more causes of loneliness. Ecclesiastes 4, verses 5 and 6. Fools fold their idle hands, leading them to ruin. And yet better to have one handful with quietness than two handfuls with hard work and chasing the wind. Depending on your personality, you're going to naturally lean more into one of these than the other one. Either being a lazy person or being a workaholic. Which one of these is more of a temptation to you? Either way, it's going to lead you to a very lonely life if you're not aware of this and you don't attack it. Laziness is the disease. Laziness is, is a comfortable path to destruction. And most of your translations say that. For verse 5, it says, Fools fold their idle hands and eat their own flesh. That's a vivid description of what laziness will do for you. Because if you're lazy... It's not going to get done unless it's done for you by someone else. And so left to your own vices, you'll end up just eating yourself alive. It's self-cannibalizing. How does laziness cause loneliness? Because relationships take a lot of work and sweat and effort. They're not easy because people are not easy. Relationships are not easy because people are not easy. If you've ever been, if you've ever been married for seven minutes, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Oh my word, marriage is hard. It's extremely hard. Nothing has caused me more effort than my marriage. And it's not because I'm married to a sinful person. My wife is a sinner. But it's really because my wife is married to a sinful person. And anytime you take two sinful people and you melt them down into one person, it takes a tremendous amount of work to keep that thing afloat. Rewarding? Absolutely. Easy? Never. Never. We all instinctively know this because we all instinctively know that life is messy. Anytime you wade into someone else's life, be prepared to get messy. Everyone's story is messy. 
The reason I know that, the reason I know your life is a mess, is because I'm so intimately aware of the mess that is my life. I know a mess when I see one because I am one. I am. Just think about it. We all, all of us, have personal standards that sometimes we don't live up to. Maybe you, you don't eat the right food, you eat too much cake, you don't work out as much as you want to, you don't save about the same amount of money that you think you should, whatever it is. We all have standards that we don't live up to sometimes. When you do live up to those standards, the temptation is to get prideful and boastful about it. That's why we have social media. That's why nobody takes a picture and, po- and posts it online without staging everything in the picture first. So we can put this best foot forward as if we're always exceeding our standards. When you don't live up to your standards, then you get down on yourself and you can become resentful against those who do. So either way, whether you're exceeding or or not even meeting your own standards, it it causes us to view other people in a negative light, just having standards to begin with. You can see it's a mess. It's a terrible mess. And this is the reason why many people just don't bother with relationships. Relationships are too much work. And so we just fold our hands in idleness and decide that we're not going to spend any time hanging out with any other humans. It's so bad now, we know that everybody wants to not be bothered, just leave us alone, that you have to text someone's phone before you can call it. It's crazy where we've gotten to in a society. How isolated we're making ourselves. Alright, if laziness isn't your thing, consider the workaholic. Maybe this is more of a natural tendency for you. The workaholic is the two-fisted consumer. Consuming with both fists, both hands at the same time. This guy has no time for relationships because he's never content with who he is or what he has. We'll hang out tomorrow if I get my work done. If. If this is you, then free time is always out there on the horizon. But it's never within reach. Right? You're always restless. As soon as you begin to think that joy and peace might be a possibility... Your mind shoots off to, well, what if? And then you're down the road back to work again. The idea that you can have too much of anything doesn't make sense to someone who's a workaholic. I know that because I am one. This one's me. And and I'm reminded of this every time I order two scoops of ice cream on a hot day. Because I know me, and I know that I'm not able to enjoy any of this ice cream if I have to throw even some of it away. And so if I have two scoops, the whole time I have that, I'm working hard to make sure I can, I can consume both scoops before any of it melts and has to be thrown away. And so as a result, I'm not enjoying any of the ice cream, let alone the people I'm with. To stick with Solomon's terminology, I'm better to have one scoop full with pleasure than two scoopfuls with a brain freeze, right? Now both of these are equal and opposite errors. One is self-cannibalizing laziness. The other one is all-consuming, being a workaholic. But listen, this is the point. If you're not self-aware of which one of these you naturally swing toward, then you're going to drift into one of those lanes. Now, the problem is that neither of those lanes is a carpool lane. Whether you're floating to lazy town or you're speeding back to work, you're going alone. You're driving alone. And whichever one of those is more natural to you, all of us are very susceptible to envy. Just assume it's very close to your heart. If you're not feeling the pressure of envy now, it will call back and return soon. It's very difficult to escape that one. Ultimately, 
this is where these diseases, these, these envy or, or laziness or being a workaholic, they lead us to loneliness. And loneliness looks like this. Solomon's getting ready to sketch us two pictures. Like a, a police artist, he's going to sketch a thumbnail, first of all, of a lonely person. And then he's going to sketch a thumbnail of someone who has defeated this, who has intervened and said, I'm not going to be that guy. I want friendship and community. But first he shows us what it looks like to be lonely. Verse 8. It's the case of a man who is all alone, without a child or a brother, yet who works hard to gain as much wealth as he can. But then he asks himself, who am I working for? Why am I giving up so much pleasure now? It's all so meaningless and depressing. Solomon paints a very accurate picture of rugged individualism that ends in a very lonely life. Nobody has this guy as their hero, right? Ebenezer Scrooge. Nobody wants to be Ebenezer Scrooge because we all know he's the personification of loneliness. Now, by the end of the movie, Scrooge realizes this is not how I want my story to end. And he intervenes and he does something intentional to stop himself from ending up like old Ebenezer Scrooge all the way to the grave. By the end of the movie, he's singing this song. I love this song. Toy Story, right? You got a friend in me? You got a friend in me? When the road looks rough ahead and you're miles and miles from your nice warm bed, just remember what your old pal said. Boy, you got a friend in me. Yeah, you got a friend in me. You got troubles and I've got them too. There isn't anything I wouldn't do for you. We stick together and we see it through because you got a friend in me. By the end of the movie, Ebenezer Scrooge has realized the pain of loneliness and he's singing this song. This is a thumbnail sketch of what it looks like to not be lonely. Ecclesiastes 4 verse 9, starting at verse 9, even if you've never read the Bible before, you've See these verses on a painting or someone's t-shirt, or you can, you can recognize these words resonate with you. Listen to what it sounds like to have defeated loneliness and be a member of true community. Two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help, but someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm. But how can one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated. But two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. One of my favorite Bible commentators, Warren Wiersbe, reads this and he explains it, what it means to have a friend. He explains it with four W words. Now, usually I'm allergic to alliteration in sermons. I think it's goofy. It doesn't usually work. This time it does. So let's quickly look at the four W words that Wiersbe says. This, this is what you have when you have a friend. Verse 9, someone to help you work. A friend will help you work. They'll help you share the load. If your car broke down right now, do you have someone you could call to come out and help who would not expect to get paid? Right, AAA doesn't count. Because only to a friend can you say, hey, I know the weather is great, but um, I'm going to need all of your Saturday to help me work on my truck and uh, clean out the attic and uh, then build me a new garage. Oh, yeah, you got to bring your own food. Only to a friend can you say that. Free labor with your friends. We keep going. Not only do friends help us work, friends help us in our walk through life. They help us just walk through life. Because as you're going through life, you need to have a few people who know you enough 
to know your weaknesses, to see your blind spots, the stuff that you don't see, and this is the important part, to call you on it. Who in your life right now feels empowered to say, listen girl, your life is a train wreck. You're just covered in all kinds of bad life decisions. I love you, I'm not going anywhere, just right now you're a hot mess and so we're going to work this out together. Who in your life feels empowered to do that for you? If you don't have anyone doing that, then you have blind spots and issues and problems and dangers and and pitfalls and potholes that you're not even aware of. You can't walk through life without having someone do that for you. Go on, Solomon says, they keep each other warm. A friend will keep you warm. Now, unlike when this was written, now we all have heating and, and indoor plumbing but the, the, the message still holds true. A friend will keep you warm. So let me ask you this. Who warms your heart? Who makes you feel good? Who makes you laugh? Who brings joy into your life? Who do you bring joy to? You got to have a friend to, to help you work and not expect to get paid. To call you on the carpet and say, man, you messed that up. That's wrong. I'm here to help, but you're wrong. And you got to have a friend to keep you warm and happy. For me, it's this guy. This big goofy guy right here. That's me and my best good friend. We have been together our entire lives. Best good friends. Only people who have been in my life longer than this guy are my mom and my dad. Um, and and we, we have been through a lot together. Some good, some bad. Um, and we've even had a few nights where we had to uh, you know snuggle up real close, like this verse says, and keep each other from freezing. We've even had a few of those. He's been in my life so long. His name's Eric. He's been in my life so long... He, much longer than my wife has, and he let her know that. He's like, hey, I've been, I got seniority over you. And so if anything goes wrong between you two and you hurt him, I'm going to help him hide your body. Right? Which is what Solomon says next. Don't laugh too hard at it, because keep reading. It's in the Bible. Solomon says, someone who's got your back, who's going to watch over you. The word here is, a friend is going to provide you watch. Or, if necessary, go to war with you. Who, right now, in your life, is willing to help you hide the bodies? Now, don't take the joke too far. I'm not saying literally go out and murder people. But here's the thing. And every city kid knows this. If you grew up in the city, you know this. It's not, I'm going to a fight. It's, we're going to a fight. Right? Get some people together who've got your back. It's going to make the enemy think twice before approaching you. I've got five boys. Five. Only one of them is a toddler, so he doesn't count for this. But my other four, they know dad expects us to never start a fight. They can all tell you the best way to win a fight is to walk away and never get in one. But if you're all out together and one of you is not able to walk away, it's not able to happen, and you've got to get in the fight, then I expect all four of you to come home dirty and scuffed up. Absolutely. The only rule in fighting is win. You've got to have each other's back. You have to. Solomon says if you don't have anyone to watch your back, you're going to be easily defeated and crushed. I pray you have someone in your life like that guy for me who will work with you, keep you warm, watch over you, and and call you out when you're walking off a cliff. You need that. All right. So what? What do we do with all this stuff? How do we use this to reach into our life and stop things from taking us down a lonely path where we're just going to go off a cliff on, on our own by ourselves? How do we do that? I want to give you three practical suggestions and then an example of what right looks like and then we'll be done. But first, we have to read the very next verse because Solomon needs to say something to us 
that he shouldn't have to say, but he does. Very next verse. Uh, 13, verse 13. It's better to be a poor but wise youth than an old and foolish king who refuses all advice. Solomon's saying here, always have a teachable spirit. On every topic, at all times, maintain a teachable spirit. Nobody likes a know-it-all who always has to add value to whatever you say. And you you know what I mean, right? Someone who has to always, whatever you say, they have to one-up it or fix it or correct it. Like, let me just ask you, seriously. I like grammar as much as the next guy. But do you really need to fix anybody's grammar? Like, stop a mid-sentence and tell them they said a word. Do you really need to do that? No. Have a teachable spirit. Be very selective about the times when you need, use that word carefully, need, when you need to correct someone. Instead, just have a teachable spirit. One of my heroes, Colin Powell, says that the four most empowering words in your vocabulary are, what is your opinion? Everybody loves to hear that. What's your opinion, man? Hey, what do you, come here. Can I ask you a question? What do you think about this? Can I get your advice? Have you ever seen anything like this before? Can you tell me what you think about this? What do you think I should do? What's your, what's your read on this? What is your opinion? Everyone, you know, you feel good when someone asks you that because you feel relevant. You feel like you matter. This is how you add value to people's life and make them friendly towards you. And listen, that question, what is your opinion? Doesn't obligate you to anything other than sincerely asking them what they think. And listen, that's all you gotta do. Finally, when you're talking to someone, be humble. Even when you're the king talking to a young man, Solomon would say, stay humble. I don't care what your rank is. I don't care what you're wearing on your collar or your sleeves. It doesn't matter. Stay humble. There's never an excuse ever to not be humble. Now, that's a ruined word. Society hears that word and goes one direction with it. We need to fix the word humble if we're going to apply it to our lives. Usually when we hear humble, we think of of some person who says, woe is me, and they they look like an unmade bed, and, and they're always talking down about themselves. It's not what we're talking about here. That's not humility. Humility is other people focused. And we have to constantly remind ourselves, be humble, be humble, be humble. Because we're not naturally thinking about other people. Right? You wake up and you think, how does me feel today? What do I want to do? What should I do? Why did he say that about me? What does she think about me? Why did she say that? Why didn't he, why didn't he come? Why isn't he here? We're always thinking, me, me, me. What is she? What are they thinking about me? Here's the problem with that. They're not thinking about you. They're thinking about the same thing you're thinking about, which is themselves. A humble person knows that. Be humble. Think about other people. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity sums it up beautifully like this. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a, a greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. That's humility. How do we stay alive? when we feel like loneliness is trying to crush us and kill us? The answer truly is humility. 
the pure form of what humility really means. Because as Lewis would say later, humility is not thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. If I spend less time thinking of myself, then I'm not focused on my problems. And all of a sudden, my problems don't bother me as much. So here's how we use humility to genuinely reach in and touch those three people inside of us, in our heart, that are most prone to loneliness. Remember these three from earlier? The envious person, the lazy person, and the, the workaholic? Here's what humility would say to these three people. First of all, to the envious, which is all of us. So we're always susceptible to this one. Take a genuine interest in another person. A genuine interest. Everyone is their own favorite topic of conversation. The sooner you learn that, the better. I don't want to talk about you. I want to talk about me. And now that we're done talking about me, let's talk about what you think about me. Everybody wants to talk about themselves. So you you kill envy and jealousy and greed by asking someone questions about themselves. And here's the point. Here's what's important. Then close your mouth and listen. Give them an opportunity to do what their heart is directing them towards. Let them talk about themselves to a person who is genuinely interested in who they are as a person. If you're prone to laziness, chances are you need to forget your feelings. Forget them. Feelings are overrated. Yours are and so are mine. Especially in the area of motivation. Motivation. It's another word we don't use correctly. Lazy people tend to think motivation is a magical set of emotions that will give you an injection of energy and and, uh, motivation and happiness right before you do something that matters. That's backwards. That's not motivation. Motivation is momentum that shows up in your life after you've started going down the right path. And it keeps you going in that direction. So forget your feelings if you're lazy. It doesn't matter if you feel like it. You know how often I feel like going to work? It's pretty rare. That's why they have to pay me to do it. How you feel is completely irrelevant. How you feel stop matters, stops mattering when you're about three years old. After that, you have to start to grow up and do what you need to do instead of what you feel like doing. So forget about your feelings and instead do something friendly for another person. And I promise you, you will be surprised how quickly your emotions catch up to your obedience and reward you for doing the right thing. I'll, be, I'll promise you, you will be. If, if work worship is your thing, if for you joy and friendship and peace are always out there on the horizon, then chances are you need to keep score daily, every day. In other words, don't fall into the trap of trying to measure joy based off of what you will get tomorrow, what you will get done, who will be in your life later. That, that doesn't work that way. Instead, force yourself to ask every single day, where did I find joy and rest and peace today? Or even better, Whose life did I bring joy and peace into today? Force yourself to keep score every day. Because tomorrow doesn't even exist. So keep score daily. All right. Like always, Jesus is the example of what right looks like. So we'll close with uh, one of my favorite pieces of criticism that's ever thrown against Jesus. Uh, Matthew 11, verse 19. These are the red words here. Jesus is talking. He says, The Son of Man, myself, the Son of Man, on the other hand, feasts and drinks. And you say he's a glutton and he's a drunkard and he's a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. I love this verse because in spite of the social pressure to only spend time with good religious people, 
Jesus instead chose to spend time with you and with me. And he didn't do it for any kind of reward or self-focused motivation. It was exactly the opposite. He just did it because he wanted to. At great cost to himself, he took a genuine interest in you and me. And listen to me. Everybody look at me. He took an interest in you already knowing what you're hiding in your sock drawer, what's in your past. He's already read all the chapters of your life that you don't read out loud. And in spite of all that, he decided he's just going to love you anyway. He did it even though he was busy and there was every reason, worldly speaking, for him not to do it. He just decided that he's going to intervene in your life, interrupt the flow toward loneliness, and say, no, 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 no. I'm going to take a genuine interest in this person. I'm going to love them anyway. I'm going to spend time with them now, today. How do you stay alive when you feel so lonely? Consider Jesus. Amen.